0: I know I'm biased, but there are a lot of things I love about this church. And one of the things that I love about this church is your willingness to invest in people. In particular, a couple of years ago, we floated an idea to the congregation about developing a ministry cohort where I would take time to lead certain men who are interested in developing skills and in reading, interpreting the Bible and pastoral ministry and preaching. And so on Wednesday nights, if you happen to drive by and and the folks at Chris's Bible study who gather there would see us, we go downstairs, they stay upstairs. There's myself and Mike Page and Rob Morang and Justin and my son Ben. And we have been studying together and we continue to study together to develop these men and their ability to bring the word, not just to this flock, but to wherever the Lord would lead. Not that we want any of them to go away, because we don't. But we surely do have a larger kingdom vision. And I'm thankful to you as a body for the sacrifices you make, giving up, allowing me to spend my time this way, uh, the literal resources that you put into these men, Uh, in terms of supplies, and it wasn't that long ago in April where we went out to a conference together. So you're really really behind it, and that means a lot to me. And today, it means a lot to me to be able to listen uh, to one of these men bring the word to you. And next week, Rob Morang will bring the word. So I would encourage you to please... Make sure you're here for that too. Because these guys probably could use your encouragement and support, and how else are they gonna get good at this until they do it? So, that's enough out of me. Justin's here this morning, he's gonna read the scripture, he's gonna bring the message.
1: Let's go to the word. Today we're reading from Exodus chapter 12, start in verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon And all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants, and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, "'Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord, as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also.' The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, and the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians." And the people of Israel journeyed from Rameses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years, At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word aloud this morning. Have you ever in your life gotten in that rut where you continually forget something important as not the occasional thing it's not like changing the batteries in your smoke detector or leap year but continually for me it's water bottles I've been blessed to serve nearly every summer of the last 13 years up at BYC and every summer I end up playing the same game with myself where did I last put that wretched thing At first, I thought it was that I didn't have a good enough bottle, and so I disliked using it. But after a few different iterations and several years, I began to realize I can't keep track of this one not-so-terribly-small item for the life of me. Well, if you're like me, then 70% of your body is made up of water. And if you're like me, when you run around with kids all day in 90-degree weather, you end up losing quite a bit of that water and needing more even than frequent stops the dining hall dispenser can supply. Water is important. In fact, almost 75% of Americans don't get enough of it. But if you're like me, knowing how important it is, you still forget. This morning, we're going to look at a story worth remembering. Often, we consider the stories of Exodus and other biblical stories fondly, but lightly along with the other children's stories we grew up with. And I can tell you right now, understanding the fullness of these passages and how they matter to your life is more important even than water on a hot day. Today's passage races quickly from God's climactic judgment of Egypt to the conclusion of one of the acts of the narrative, if you will. We will see this morning that what God set out to do, he's done and that going forward, the scene has changed and the narrative takes off in a new direction. This change is accomplished because, despite the power of mighty Pharaoh, despite the practiced cruelty and dominance of the Egyptian taskmasters, despite even the wavering belief of Israel and Moses himself, God triumphs. And for us now, as we recall, that God has stated clearly, all the way back in Exodus chapter 3, just what would occur on this Passover night, we might also look back in our own lives and recognize that the God we worship on Sunday, and who we are often prone to forget on Monday, has been proved faithful and sovereign, time and again. If today's passage teaches anything, it teaches that God is worth remembering. God, I ask this morning that your word would go forth. You deserve to be the centerpiece of all that we do, especially in the study of your word. May your spirit be present to open ears and hearts and to speak what you would have your people hear. In Jesus' name, amen. The scene opens in the dark of night. And under the cover of this darkness, a terrible but well-deserved judgment has been personally carried out by God, affecting every house in the land. God has proved in a very immediate and vivid manner that he will hold to his proclamation in the Garden of Eden. Sin brings death. And as we saw last week, not only death to Egyptians, every house has seen death this night in the form of a lamb or the form of a firstborn human. Starting right off in verse 29, the Lord strikes at midnight. Remember that the hand of God has been systematically dismantling the authority of the false gods of Egypt. Pharaoh's hardness of heart has already brought terrible consequences to his nation, but now he awakens in the night to discover that the administrative and economic hardship he has brought upon Egypt is only a minor display of the power of his adversary. Pharaoh awakens to realize that this man, Moses, serves and speaks for a God who has the power to wipe him and his people off the face of the earth. The message finally gets through. Pharaoh summons Moses and Aaron. Remember that previously he had warned these troublesome envoys that if he saw them again, they would be put to death. But now, as the popular phrase goes in television and literature, circumstances have changed. Moses and Aaron come to hear words that may sound authoritative, and perhaps even angry, but what Pharaoh actually says tells a rather different story. He tells Moses to, well, to do exactly what Moses had wanted to do. In fact, Pharaoh makes it clear that he's not trying to bargain or hedge in any way as previously attempted when Moses came before him to bring God's word. Twice, Pharaoh states, as you have said, submitting to Moses' desires. And even more profoundly, he ends his eviction notice with, And bless me also. If we turn back to chapter 7, verse 1, we read where God tells Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. Moses speaks with God's voice and wields God's power. And Pharaoh has certainly humbled himself here to ask for blessing, acknowledging that it is Moses who can bring blessing through his connection to the Lord and implying that Moses can also bring further, cur- further curses upon Pharaoh and Egypt. The sad irony is that Pharaoh could have obtained this same blessing by simply submitting to the Lord at first, avoiding the terrible judgments that his self-worship brought upon the land of Egypt. Pharaoh could have glorified God by utilizing his earthly power in service to the Lord's will. But instead, he became the most prominent example in Scripture, Of how God glorifies himself, even through those who deny and fight against his perfect plan for the world. God knew Pharaoh's hardness of heart even before Moses returned to Egypt, knew that he would need to be brought to ruin as the not really all that strong head of his kingdom before he would relent, and worked in Pharaoh to bring about this calamitous fate for Egypt so that in the end there would be no doubt in the minds of men who the Lord was and what he not only deserved, but could obtain for himself without any assistance whatsoever. Thank you very much. And I wonder if upon reflection we might recognize a similar truth as regards our own lives. That submission to God up front can save us the pain and misery that is sure to come if we seek to hold on to control of our own kingdom, rather than recognize the God who will have his way through us or in spite of us. It is also sad to read later on that this light and momentary surrender of Pharaoh's is not a true repentance. It is not a policy change with far-reaching consequences for Egypt. In fact, shortly, we will see Egypt fade out of this historical narrative for quite some time, appearing only as a warped memory from time to time in the dissatisfied hearts of Israel. So why emphasize Pharaoh's last words to Moses and Aaron? What is the importance of this short interaction? It is Israel's freedom surrendered to God. And what a complete triumph for the Lord this is. The false gods of Egypt have been brought to shame. Clear distinction has been made between those who are gods and those who are not. And God's will and plan have been thoroughly and completely carried out by his own wondrous might. Now it is time for Israel to become something new. This people who, for comparison, have been beholden to and then held captive by Egypt for almost 200 years longer than this country has existed as a nation, are in one night given a new identity and a new purpose and sent off toward a new home. Now they are God's people going out to serve the Lord and following wherever he chooses to lead them. And Israel's departure from Egypt is not a story of cheery goodbyes and long sighs. We almost get the sense from the reading that these 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children, completely vacate Egypt in half a night. That in itself seems miraculous, knowing what we know of rush hour traffic in the grand metropolis of Ellsworth, Maine, population 7,741 as of the 2010 census. But why the urgency? Verse 33 tells us not that Israel was urgent to leave Egypt, but that the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land. The people of Israel are likely reeling in confusion at this point, though not daring to disobey the commands of the Lord, having just had a front row seat, to the divine ruination of the world's foremost power in what was likely a few short and terrifying months. But Egypt's opinion on this situation is settled. Israel doesn't just leave Egypt, they are thrust out It's noteworthy that we don't read here of Israel's desire to leave Egypt, but that Egypt's desire to have done with Israel is the driving force of this forced march out of the land. We know that in Exodus 2.23, Israel cried out in their captivity for help. But the emphasis here is that upon experiencing the wrath of God, Egypt fears having these curse-bringing slaves in their land even for one more day. This doesn't mean that Israel didn't have a clue. We see the mention of bread and leaven multiple times in this passage, and Rob will have more to say on that next week. But in today's text, we see that one clear understanding of the unleavened bread was that it represents the readiness of Israel to depart. The dark terror of this Passover night is one of anticipation, of a readiness to respond. Israel may not yet know how they got to this point, where they're going, how to get there, or even really who this God that will lead them there is. But at least for this night, they know that they had better stand ready to go when he says go. Luckily, they have the Egyptians there to point them to the exit. Not only this, but Egypt is willing to give the Israelites whatever they ask for in order to get them to leave. The people of Israel ask for and receive silver and gold jewelry and clothing As God told Moses, Egypt shows Israel favor. This is not necessarily a statement that the Egyptians were happy to give their possessions up. In fact, it is almost surely the fear of the Lord's punishing hand that causes this generosity. But nonetheless, it is a favorable response to the Israelites asking. So Israel leaves Egypt. They leave quickly. They leave with ties cut. At this point, Israel wants to escape Egypt. And Egypt wants them gone even worse. And Israel leaves laden with possessions. As mentioned a couple weeks ago, this wealth would, have become, would become troublesome for Israel as they try to come to terms with their new identity. But this same wealth serves another purpose later on. When we reach Exodus 25, we will read of God commanding Moses to receive the contributions of the people for his sanctuary. Where do you suppose these former slaves acquired the items required for the grand work of the tabernacle? From the Egyptians. Israel leaves Egypt quickly with ties cut and equipped to honor and worship the Lord as a new and distinct people. After this hurried night, the pace of the narrative picks up even further, speaking of Israel's journey towards the edge of Egyptian territory and mentioning also that a mixed multitude went up with them. Likely, these are other slaves of Egypt not descended from Jacob, taking advantage of this fine opportunity to get out of town before Egypt wakes up and realizes that there are still pyramids to be built, and someone needs to do the building. More likely still, there was some intermingling of Israel and these varied peoples throughout Israel's time in Egypt, forming connections close enough that they decided to remain with Israel when the distinction was made between Israel and Egypt. And it can hardly be thought impossible that once this mixed multitude saw that Israel was favored of a tremendously powerful deity, these people desired very much to be associated with that same power. So, along with these other people, and very much livestock, Israel leaves Egypt. And one small point to ponder, They leave without having prepared provisions for themselves. More on that in the weeks to come. And now for a second time, the perspective and pace shift as the God versus Egypt arc of Exodus is winding down. And we see a bit of expositional commentary, an explaining of the big picture. Verses 40 through 42 might be easily passed over as historical trivia, but their import is tremendous. Remember once again that God spoke to Abram, the grandfather of Jacob, that Abram's descendants would be strangers in a country not their own, that they would be enslaved, that they would be afflicted, and that this time away from home, away from God's promised home, would be four centuries in length. Now we see it fulfilled. God has done exactly what he said he would do. These hundreds of thousands of people are living out a plan set in place and foretold long before their own births. They even come out with great possessions, as God told Moses they would. Not one word out of place in God's foretelling. And Israel remembers this night. Though imperfectly kept throughout their history, the Passover continues to this day as an important observance in Judaism. And as we celebrated last week, it continues in the Christian observance of communion as well. The passing of the Lord's wrath from us through the body and blood of Christ. It was a night of watching by the Lord, though this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord. From this last verse, close the three points of application I want to leave you with today. I'm Not nearly done. The first point is this. The terrifying and overpowering God of the Exodus is also the God of our Exodus. This may seem trite, but recognition of the unchanging nature of the Lord brings with it a host of implications when we call him our Lord. It implies that he is not our Lord in the same way we mean when we call it our car or our backyard. God is not standing by to put his stamp of approval and a smiley face sticker on our opinions and lifestyles. He is ordering the universe according to his own will and plan and tearing down all that opposes his absolute rule. Is God getting the reverence and respect he deserves from us when we call him our Lord? It also implies, thankfully, that in claiming God as Lord, we are not only submitting to his way, but we're accepting his favor. Israel barely understood who God was, but God knew Israel and acted for their benefit. We too may hesitate to invoke the name of God on our own behalf, but rest assured that the same power that overthrew Egypt is ready to tear down any and all hindrance in our own lives to what God has ordained for us. Finally, the idea that God is the God of our Exodus implies that if the Lord is our Lord, then we too have left something behind. Perhaps you were saved as a child and never left a life of sin behind. But regardless, if you are in Christ, you should be able to look back and see a trail of things you've left behind. Burdens born out of the need to control. Habits unworthy of the calling you were given bitterness against another, or ways of thinking that do not accord with scripture. These sorts of things should litter your back trail as you follow the Lord and forsake slavery to sin. An exodus is a mass departure of people. And speaking personally and spiritually, the mass of our exodus is in its totality and continuity from the moment we surrender to the overcoming God to the moment he completes our exodus and takes us from this world. Only a truly great and mighty God could accomplish this. My second point, the manner of our exodus in salvation is of a kind with the manner of the exodus of Israel. It is sudden and complete. From the moment that God confronted Adam and Eve with their sin to the moment that Jesus cried out, it is finished on the cross, to this day, The path to new life begins with confession and belief. The understanding and acknowledgement that you are the Lord's and the determination to follow him into all the unknowns of life. It may take many years of tarrying in Egypt for us to come to the point of decision, but it only takes a moment for our hearts to be changed and our minds to be flooded with the light of God's truth. And that moment changes everything. The darkness of Egypt's sin and the terror of God's deadly judgment give way to the light of a new day as we walk free. The manner of our exodus also means that when our God overcomes the power of Egypt in our lives, all that once had power over us is no longer able to hinder us. The favor of the Egyptians is, as mentioned in a previous sermon, proof of God's favor toward Israel. Not only did the Egyptians let Israel leave, they urged them to leave. Not only will your sinful nature and this sinful world not prevent you from following God, but you may discover favor and encouragement in following God from the unlikeliest of sources. Do we live our lives with confidence of the Lord's favor toward us as we follow him? Not only that, but when we leave our life of slavery, we leave with everything we need to bring honor to the Lord. All the capital we helped create in service to sin becomes riches to offer up to the Lord. Our vilest deed becomes a testimony of God's ability to forgive. Our painful past is a tool to connect with others who share the same or similar stories. God not only redeems who we are, he also redeems who we were and turns it into an implement for his own glorification. Could you ask for a rescue more wonderful? My final point is this, who God is and what God has done is of such magnificence and wonder and personal importance to us that it deserves to be remembered. Who God is and what God has done is of such magnificence and wonder and personal importance to us that it deserves to be remembered. That remembrance is an act of worship, and it leads to more acts of worship. Israel in their slavery cried out for help, and they received it from one who they did not even know in a manner they could not have imagined, for a purpose too grand for them ever to comprehend. Even we today cannot know the ways or understand the thoughts of our great God. But we can see what he has done. We can look back on his fingerprints throughout history, his lifting up of nations and toppling of kings, even his work in our own lives. Most importantly, we can look back and see the gospel, the good news of God's plan of salvation for all who would leave their slavery and follow him. The night of the Passover saw Israel spared from the killing wrath of God, but also freed from the power of Pharaoh. The Passover lamb was not only the covering for the houses of Israel, but the price paid for their freedom. Christ, our Passover lamb, slain on a Roman cross, not only spared us from God's anger, but loosed our shackles and swung open the prison door it is worth remembering who made the way for us to be free. If God is so amazing and does such great work watching over us and shepherding us through this life, ought we not watch also? Ought we not be alert and focused, keeping in mind what God has done and what he requires of us? Perhaps this morning, you're realizing that you have yet to get up and walk out of that prison cell that God in Christ has opened for you. You have yet to leave Egypt and slavery to sin. Maybe you've been pondering this story of Jesus, this story of God come down to save his rebellious creation, but have yet to acknowledge how desperately you need to be saved from sin, from defiance of God's will and its quiet consequences. Maybe this morning you've forgotten that the Lord is sovereign, and almighty, that he will have his way and nothing will stand against him. And you need either encouragement to rely on his help or rebuke as you seek to fight against his will in your life. Maybe you simply need help from the Lord, whether it's healing, strength to deal with life's troubles, whatever it may be. If so, this morning our elders who I would ask to come the front of the altar or after our closing hymn, they would love to pray with you. We serve a great God. And I'd ask you to ponder that now and to glory in it as we sing our closing hymn. Number 147, How Great Thou Art. Let's stand and sing verses one, three, and four.